From Telluride Science, this is Science Straight Up. We wrap the RNA molecules in a set of other chemicals that allow it to actually remain stable, get to the right tissue, and produce the targeting effects that we actually want. Recoding drug design one gene at a time. I'm Judy Muller. And I'm George Lewis. The COVID pandemic has made us all aware of mRNA vaccines that target those deadly coronaviruses. But that's just the beginning of an exciting field of medical research that could pave the way toward ending a whole array of diseases. Dr. Atma Pai is an assistant professor of RNA therapeutics at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. Dr. Pai was awarded a $1 million career grant from the National Science Foundation to support her studying of mRNA splicing and to provide internships for both high school and college students. Dr. Pai, who spoke at a town talk sponsored by Telluride Science, comes by her interest in science quite naturally. We often like to ask scientists about their personal stories, about how they got hooked on science. And I know you were raised by two scientists, but... So it's in your DNA. It is, yes, Yes, for sure. But your passion for the field was fueled by something that happened to you just as you graduated from high school. Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so I graduated from high school in 2003. um, And 2003 was the same year that the Human Genome Project was completed. Um, So I obviously had grown up with science my entire life, um, but this idea that that was in the news and, and there was you know, a nice race to get that, that uh, human genome completed, so it really was a, a bit more drama to a story, so I made it an, Explain uh, just briefly what the Human yeah. Genome Project Certainly, certainly. So while we have known about DNA and the structure of DNA and, and the sequences of specific genes for decades, the composition and the order of those three billion sequences was not actually completely figured out until 2003. And so that was the Human Genome Project. It was a project to complete the genome of the human species. And this was a huge effort led by scientists at NIH and and, um, also a company called Celera, which uh, competed against each other, created quite a bit of drama, um, and and made quite a lot of news. So right around that time, someone also gave me um, a book for for one of my birthdays um, on what's encoded in our DNA. And so the combination of those two things made me fascinated with this idea that genetics can really uh, hold promise in ways um, that had not been realized before. So because of that, I, I, when I went to college, I, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, but I kind of played around with a lot of other things. I majored in biochemistry, but then also picked up an anthropology major. And ultimately, my, my research was actually in um, anthropological genetics. So I spent uh, my research as an undergraduate really working on um, the evolution of human species and how we can understand that from our DNA and how we can actually trace migrations of humans across continents using DNA sequences. Mm. So I was able to combine my passion for genetics, my passion for anthropology and evolution, and, and I've kind of continued to do that throughout the, my career. Now, Dr. Pai's research centers on RNA therapeutics, developing treatments that can combat viruses or misbehaving genes that cause disease. She says once you know the genome of the thing you're fighting, like COVID, you can move to develop treatments pretty rapidly. 
All you have to do is make sure that RNA, a tricky and unstable little guy, is tamed. We wrap the RNA molecules in a set of other chemicals that allow it to actually remain stable, get to the right tissue, and produce the targeting effects that we actually want. So what this allows is very fast drug design and additionally personalized drug design. From the time that the actual genome sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was published to the time that Moderna shipped uh, vaccine samples in test tubes to NIH took 25 days. That really highlights the efficiency and the rational ability to design uh, RNA-based drugs. So mRNA-1273 uh, um, was the first sequence designed and the one that worked. Why did this work? That's kind of the core question, right? Why, did this, why were we able to do this so quickly? And it's because Moderna and many other companies had actually spent many years optimizing all of those other components necessary to make sure we can develop the drug quickly once we have the sequence we know we want to target. They had optimized those chemical um, kind of wraparounds, the delivery vehicles, the right way to design an mRNA sequence, and the right way to make sure that sequence and that molecule remain stable in cells. So we really piggybacked off of dozens of years of RNA research and also tens of years of actual uh, drug development to get to that point. You might remember that the first COVID vaccines had to be kept at really cold temperatures in order to work. Dr. Pai says there's been progress in that area, although there's a lot still to be done. So that stability is a big problem. Temperature control, I, I think, is something that many companies are getting over um, because you're able to make it possible to store it in normal freezers. However, the stability is still an issue. One of the things that actually is more of an issue with regarding st stability is that if you inject an RNA drug into a, into a muscle or, or um, a bloodstream or something that you know many of us are used to drugs being injected into, it then needs to actually be transported to the right tissue to actually function. And because of its instability, it can actually, uh, um, it might not make that journey properly. And so that's where I started to touch upon this idea that people are actually developing chemical wraparounds to make sure that it stays stable and stick, sticks around for as long as we want it to, but also is able to be carried to the right place very efficiently. And so I think the, that those are certainly huge challenges. You were involved in... <laughs> mRNA research well before the development of the COVID vaccines. But That's right. Were you surprised at the speed at which all of this happened? You, you mentioned Moderna going from the discovery of the genome to shipping the first vaccine samples to the feds for approval. But, you know, it, it, it took place in a matter of a month or so. I think I was not quite surprised. Yeah, it, it was... Um, extremely exciting. I was very excited by how fast it happened. Um, sitting at home, like many of you, I was not allowed to go into my lab because we were not actually doing right. vaccine work. But I think that many of us in the field had been following the, the promise of these technologies for so many years. Um, mm. The chief scientific officer of Moderna is actually a former colleague of mine at UMass Medical School. And she'd been giving talks for many years on um, how do you properly design these molecules? Um, the principles of targeting those molecules based on sequence had been known for many years. Um, the principles of how do you actually get that into cells was something that Moderna had actually published many papers on for uh, at least five or ten years before the 
vaccine development. Was nobody so, paying attention? I'm sorry. Outside of scientific circles? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I, I don't know. But inside scientific circles, I can definitely say that people are paying attention. Um, and so that's why I think someone like me, who had already been following the RNA research, was not as surprised. RNA-based molecules, as I understand it, are, are larger molecules than other therapeutics, mm -hmm. which makes targeted delivery mm -hmm. within the body more difficult. Right. Is that correct? So is safety in RNA drug delivery a focus? Is this a problem? Are there dangerous side effects? Uh, there are side effects, the same as there are for any other drugs. Speaking from my personal opinion, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not the FDA, <laughs> I'm not a, a physician. The safety is not a huge concern for me um, because I think that, again, the, the principles behind um, what I was trying to touch upon in my talk, um, behind the delivery of RNA molecules, stays consistent throughout every RNA molecule that's delivered. So once that's optimized, as it has been now for mRNA vaccines, because we've all seen that there are few to no side effects other than your immune response kicking in, which is actually something you want to happen, that same delivery uh, wraparound or package can be used for any other mRNA vaccine or any other um, uh, RNA therapeutic that wants to get into our immune cells. Um, so because of that, you can separate the targeting from the safety considerations very quickly. And, and that's something that's not possible for small molecule drugs, which often um, can have their own side effects that are inherent to the targeting principles themselves. Besides the COVID vaccine, other kinds of RNA therapeutics are going after genetic defects. Dr. Pai talked about a little girl from Longmont, Colorado, named Mila. You're my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. She had a rare fatal genetic condition called Batten disease, destroying her brain cells. They had her genome sequenced. They realized exactly which specific um, mutation in her DNA sequence was actually causing her disease. But that didn't mean they knew how to target it. They still had no idea how to treat her. We spoke to Mila's mother, Julia Vitarello, via Zoom. I had to be a mom to a child that was losing all her abilities rapidly between six and seven years old, losing her vision, her last words, saying mommy for the last time, starting to have seizures, you know, starting to have a G-tube and not eat by mouth. A researcher at Boston University, Dr. Timothy Yu, came up with a customized RNA injection just for Mila. He even named it Milicin in her honor. And after the initial treatments, Mila was making progress. The seizures that had kind of built up to about 30, 20 to 30 a day that were lasting two minutes, and she was smashing her arms and legs on tables and chairs, and um, those went down to almost nothing. And then after that, I would say, you know, she was able to um, sit up stronger. So it meant that she could swallow. So she started eating by mouth again. It was pureed foods, but like she could eat by mouth. Sadly, the treatment came too late to save Mila. Her condition worsened again, and she died in 2021 at the age of 10. But now Dr. Pai says Mila's case could point the way for future treatments of rare diseases. Her lifespan was, was greatly extended, and it did highlight not just the ability to use these drugs to treat diseases in which otherwise there would be absolutely no treatment and no, no positive prognosis, but also the ability to do it quite fast. 
And this is something that many of my colleagues are now starting to focus a lot of their effort on. Mila's condition is one of about 7,000 rare diseases classified by the Food and Drug Administration. While the diseases are rare, the people who have them are numerous, about 30 million Americans at last count. A big problem with designing personalized RNA treatments for people with these diseases is the high cost, about $3 million for Mila's treatment. My daughter's drug, Milicin, was a one-off from an amazing academic effort that was Herculean. But how many times can you do what I did? It required me to raise millions of dollars. I am not a fundraiser. I had to raise millions of dollars. I had to form a foundation. In these cases, for patients with these rare diseases, often every six months, they have to take another shot of this. So it's a huge cost at the moment. Um, There are many people working on actually trying to bring those costs down significantly. Um, Part of the cost actually is in the development of um, the, the safety considerations, those trials to make sure that um, that the molecules that are being delivered are safe, effective, clean, so they do not have any contaminants in any way in them. Um, and part of the cost for drug design now is actually in those clinical trial phases, which take as much as 10 to 15 years to conduct. Um, so at the moment, Uh, designing a drug for one person does take millions of dollars. Um, The hope is, though, that that would come down as this becomes more commonplace. Dr. Pai says there's a whole range of RNA therapies in the works awaiting approval, including one for sickle cell anemia, a disease that affects primarily black people. But can that drug be delivered to black communities at a reasonable price? It's a very good question. Um, from my understanding, without, again, being involved in any of those companies, um, they are actually uh, working to make them available as much as possible to communities that are otherwise underserved uh, by, by me- the medical system. But I, I know very little about the details of that aspect of it. Yeah. And you had a list of things that have already been treated, mm-hmm. uh, starting with retinitis, which mm-hmm. I gather requires a hypodermic into the eyeball. That's right. Is, there were a whole list of things that have been addressed already. That's right. Well, what do you see as a sort of a, is this going to be kind of a silver bullet for future cancer? What, where do you see this going? You people in science don't like to use the term silver bullet, do you? We <laughs> no. like to be cautious, that's true. Yeah. I think that it, it, it holds great promise in treating diseases that are more complex than diseases that have, that have been currently treated. Um, and one of the reasons is because you mentioned cancer. Um, cancer is often not caused by a single mutation. In fact, it's actually not caused in the same way in every person. Even the same type of cancer, uh, with a few notable exceptions, is caused by entirely different things across every single person who, res- who, who um, comes down with that cancer. Um, so the reason that I see promise in, in RNA therapeutics for treating diseases like that is because you can now start to target um, genes or, or processes that um, are, are the second things that are happening, and you can increase the levels of those RNA or protein, uh, proteins in ways that you were not able to do before. So you can essentially say, we're gonna force the cell to make things right instead of shutting down what was going wrong, which is the previous paradigm. Um, 
So I, th I think that there's, there's a great amount of promise in actually doing that because it changes how we think about uh, the complexities of diseases like that. So yes, I, I hope it's a silver bullet, but I, yeah, I have no it's idea exciting. how to say that. No. Yeah, <laughs> Very exciting. I know that, that when we spoke before, you mentioned, I think companies like Biogen receiving first-level clinical clearances from the FDA for some of this research that seems to be moving at lightning speed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of this research is going quite, quite fast. Um, many uh, companies are in uh, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials for dozens of other drugs that, that I did not list because they're not approved. Um, I anticipate the numbers I've seen have been upwards of 25 RNA-based drugs being approved in the next 12 months, um, if not more. Um, for many of these uh, drugs, um, the mRNA vaccine being one of them, uh, they've now gotten to the point where they're actually skipping some of those initial clinical trials every time they develop a new sequence. Um, and, and we've all seen this because when they designed the booster sequence, which is an entirely different sequence, to what we took on, uh, in the first round of RNA, mRNA vaccines, um, they were able to skip many of those trials. Um, and that goes back to this idea that you can change out that sequence quite quickly without actually changing all of the other effects of how you deliver the molecule, how you get it to the right place, how it works in our cells. Um, so for instances like that, I think that what my, my um, guess is, what we'll see in the next few years is, um, uh, the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine becoming commonplace um, as mRNA vaccines, maybe even combinations where, there, where um, without having to go through this large round of clinical trials, we're able to quickly adapt to what is present in the environment, um, which is not something the flu vaccine actually is able to do right now. It has to be decided upon many, many months before. So um, you, you think that if there's a new strain of flu that appears, you can have the vaccine pretty fast? Quickly. That's right. You can change that strain over the course of the flu season. Um, oh, and you can deliver it with the mRNA vaccine um, because you can put multiple, multiple mRNA molecules in the same delivery package. So yeah, I think that does change the paradigm of clinical trials that's used now. Um, but in, in specific instances, right? I don't, I don't think that they're going to cut corners um, right. with respect to things that have never been seen before or have not been tested. We should probably open it up to the audience because we want to give you some time if you have questions. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. That was fascinating. Um, it seems to me, although I may be misunderstanding, that there's a difference between your two final examples. That in Mila's case, they were attacking something in her own DNA, whereas in the COVID SARS case, we sequenced the um, virus's DNA and we're attacking it. Are, are those two fundamentally different processes or am I misunderstanding? No, no, you caught that quite well. They are fundamentally different processes and I think actually highlight the diversity of ways in which RNA-based drugs can be designed and, and the diversity of processes they can target. Um, so you're entirely right that in the mRNA vaccine, we, what, what, um, what the vaccine does is actually uh, deliver an RNA molecule, an, a messenger RNA molecule, so the full composition of that RNA molecule that can create a protein for a portion of the spike protein in, in, the, um, in the virus uh, genome. Um, so that's a, that's a protein that our, our cells do not normally create. 
But what happens is that when the cells create that protein, uh, because the instructions to do so have been delivered, um, it's able to mount an, uh, an antibody response or an immune response to it, and that immune response is then what sustains and uh, makes our cells remember, we've seen that before, we don't need to get really sick, right? And, and that's the reason that vaccine works. In Mila's case, it's entirely different, and you're right again that what, what that therapy does is actually target a mutation that was a spontaneous mutation that arose in her genome that underlies uh, her Batten's disease. I like those two examples, not just because they highlight the two spectrums of uh, the amount of people they can affect, but, but also, as you brought up, um, how they, they're really different in the fundamental way in which they worked, but the principles underlying the RNA technologies are, are actually very similar. Okay, so we got another over here, yes. Thank you for the presentation. You, you've spoken about both benefits and safety, I guess, risks in general. As a researcher, could you share with us some of your thoughts about ethics of this type of research and how you deal with them? Certainly. Um, yeah, so, so my lab actually, you know, we, we really deal with um, cells in a dish, <laughs> um, uh, where we try to understand kind of inherently how um, these fundamental processes actually normally occur in our cells. Um, but there are certainly a lot of ethical considerations uh, because even the work that we do, those cells in the dish came from a human being. Um, and they are usually derived from, from cells from a cancer patient um, who these days has gone through an extensive informed consent process to make sure that they understand where their cells are, are um, being donated and how they're being used, but that wasn't always the case. Um, and so a lot of this research, you know, in the past was not really conducted ethically. Um, I think scientists like myself and many of my colleagues are, are trying to make strides to, to overcome that. Um, one of the ways in, is making sure that all the cells that we use is, is ethically sourced and, and all of the people who donate them are, are um, perfectly aware of what, what, what they're being used for. Um, another way that, that George actually brought up is ensuring that any of the technologies that um, we might develop is able to be distributed uh, equally and equitably um, throughout the community, especially to the populations that need it the most. Um, so in a lot of human genetics research, um, researchers are also actively ensuring that the, the patient populations they sample DNA or cells from is also equitably distributed throughout um, different ethnic groups, um, uh, populations um, um, throughout the country and throughout different cities um, and throughout the world um, in order to make sure that, that the research is not just being conducted on a very small subset of uh, usually privileged individuals, but rather is able to um, kind of uh, span the, the global population in a better way. I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Dr. Athma Pai, thank you so much for sharing this very exciting and timely research. Thank you and so much for coming. And now, and now big thank hand. you very much, Dr. Pai. <laughs> That does it for this edition of Science Straight Up. Our presentation was recorded at the Telluride Conference Center in Mountain Village, Colorado. And a big thank you to the Telluride Mountain Village Homeowners Association for providing the venue. 
Our audio engineer was the incomparable Dean Raleigh of Dragonfire Productions. Alpine Bank is a Telluride Science keynote sponsor. The executive director of Telluride Science is Mark Kozak, and Cindy Fusting is managing director. Annie Carlson runs donor relations, and Sarah Friedberg is lodging and operations manager. For more information to hear all our podcasts, and if you want to donate to the cause, go to telluridescience.org. I'm George Lewis. And I'm Judy Muller, inviting you to join us next time on Science Straight Up. Thank you.